land tax, stamp duty, tenants. Sure, property is great, but there are easier ways to get your passive income, sometimes with franking credits. Through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, you can buy a basket of shares in many different companies in one trade. BetaShares offers Australia's broadest range of ETFs, including income-focused funds, which aim to provide yield-hungry investors with attractive income streams. Discover the BetaShares range of ETFs and how simple they can be to invest in by going to betashares.com.au. Read the relevant PDFs and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. This is a podcast by the RASC Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of the Rask Group. I'm Pete Wargent, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be the most trusted property podcast in Australia. I'm Pete Wardgen, author and buyer's agent, and today I'm joined by... Chris Bates, uh, a mortgage broker. Welcome, Chris. Great to have you on as always. So today we're going to talk about uh, cash flow management, so big topic. <laughs> it's not or... the most sexiest name, is it? <laughs> cash flow management. Yeah, but... we should have uh, put some marketing time into the podcast <laughs> title maybe, but uh, <laughs> nevertheless, that is what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, um, I mean, we're going to attack it in a number of different ways. We're going to talk about um, saving for a deposit, you know, uh, there's a lot of, you know, what's the right property move? You know, how much do you need? What's the right budgeting strategies? You know, what's some sort of left field ideas that we think a lot of clients all have missed and uh, do they, you know, should they be thinking about? Um, and I guess it's um, it's also three stages. You know, there's a budget, you know, once you've saved up the deposit uh, pre-purchase, there's a budget you need post-purchase. Um, there's a different budget you need um, if you're buying an investment property. So there's there's quite a bit to it, even though cash flow management, the name doesn't sound that great. Um, I mean, I think the, the first thing we should start on, Pete, is, is really that saving for the deposit. Um, you know, as a broker, I've just seen, you know, there's complete misunderstanding, um, you know, how much do you actually need? But how much you need really comes down to what's the right property, right? Like what's the right property for you? So you know, how should people think about that, I guess? Well, I, I guess the old quote is to try and begin with the end in mind. Stephen Covey, I think it was years ago. And I, I think you're right. I think um, people often focus on buying the product instead of starting with, you know, what are you actually trying to achieve? I think a lot comes down to, well, how much will the bank actually lend? You know, what's your borrowing capacity? And then that, you know, that in itself may inform what you decide to buy. So I guess if we're talking here about a first home buyer, for example, I mean, that's really, we often say it's the biggest and most important decision in many ways that you ever make in properties, getting that first purchase right. Um, so what are the things that a first home buyer has yep. to think about in terms of what do you need to save for? How much deposit do they need to save? Uh, what are the closing costs, things like stamp duty and all of that stuff? So I guess that's your starting point. Yeah, I mean, this is what we do every day as as brokers, I guess, is, is get clients who come to us and they really have no idea of what, what they can borrow. Um, I mean, a good rule of thumb typically in the past is probably six times your income just to 
Um, that's actually down to five times in you know in 2023 due to all the big interest rate increases recently. Um, but yeah, that's the first thing. You know, and a lot of people think I'll just get a property, but what they're potentially are doing is maybe they could borrow 800,000 and they're going to buy a property for 300,000. So they're wasting the opportunity if they just saved a little bit more money and then potentially got a better asset or. You know, didn't have to play in the apartment market, could have played in the housing market, etc. Um, I think from a stage point of view, I think people need to be thinking through, look, am I buying this first place um, ultimately with the idea that I'll have to sell it when I maybe meet a partner or maybe when a family's coming? And so then you've got to really think, well, what's the right property for me? A, I'll, yeah, I want to live in it, maybe from a lifestyle benefit, but what I'm going to have to sell this and that deposit has to really grow because I'm going to need more deposit when I buy the next place. Um, you know, I think that's the, the first thing. I think sometimes people think um, I should just get in now I've got $50,000 sitting in the bank it's not getting anything um, and sometimes the best advice depending on your borrowing capacity is actually save a little bit harder especially if you're in a couple and you know maybe a family's a couple of years away you know we often say to clients look how, how much are you saving per month and it's you know when they've got their their goal which we'll talk about they can usually save a lot more than what they are when they they've got that sort of severe goal so a lot of people think well should I wait six to twelve months increase my income or save or should I just you know look to buy an investment property because you know ultimately I've got no idea when I want to leave I'm maybe living in Sydney or Melbourne for now but I want to move regionally I want to go overseas um, let's just buy a pure investment and that 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 savings amount all changes yeah that's an interesting one in terms of do I buy now, i.e. as soon as I can, or do I save a bit harder, uh, make full use of the borrowing capacity, might maybe buy a better property, better asset. I think um, in a rapidly rising market, it's quite hard, isn't it? Because you, you get this sense that if I don't buy now, I'll be paying more in a month's time and six months time, which is why we get the market cycles in the first place. Um, I think um, as we record here today, the market, um, we're not in a boom period and people can take their time a little bit be, take a more informed decision and maybe uh, take a bit of extra time to save the deposit if that's what you need to do. Now, Chris, years ago, people used to say, oh, you've got to save 20% deposit uh, to buy your first place because there's things like lenders, mortgage insurance. But then the environment has changed a bit over the years. Um, now, you're a mortgage broker and you specialize in this stuff all the time. Is there a rule of thumb for how much people should be looking to save as a deposit? Does it depend on the lender, circumstances? Yes, sometimes people think it's... uh uh, much lower than they actually do need. And sometimes people, it's a lot more than they need. A lot of people think you need a 20% deposit, um, but also stamp duty is quite expensive. You know, some parts around the country, you've got stamp duty exemptions, you um, you know, up to certain limits for first home buyers, et cetera. But, you know, a good rule of thumb is probably to say well, stamp duty is 5%, you know, and, you know, in Victoria, it's quite expensive, you know, compared to other states. So it might be a bit more than that. But if you think I need 5%, you know, always for stamp duty, unless I've got some type of government exemption. Um, and from a deposit point of view, a 20% deposit sounds like a lot of money. And why people think you need a 20% deposit is to avoid something called lender's mortgage insurance. And we'll talk about that a lot on the podcast, but uh, lender's mortgage insurance isn't just some one massive fee if you borrow at 81%. It gets gradually more expensive. And, you know, as a broker, we're trying to get someone to at least a 10% deposit. Um, 
uh, because that really reduces the lender of mortgage insurance and ideally a 12 or 14% deposit if you can. So, But let's say the baseline is 10% deposit plus 5% for stamp duty if you have to pay that. Um, so around 15%, which is much lower than 25% that people think. Um, you know, But that's not a saying that you potentially um, haven't got access to a government scheme. I mean, the government's got a 5% deposit scheme on at the moment. Um, which you know has caps on different locations, but those caps have all gone up, and that's a really good option for a lot of first-home buyers, um, especially because they kind of don't have to pay um, stamp duty in a lot of states. Um, you know, some clients, depending on the situation, we usually go through a lot of hurdles, but maybe their parents often um, have have a few properties or even their home, and and are willing to do a guarantor loan for you, which means you might not even any deposit. So, I think that the deposit amount does vary on. The type of property you're buying, that percentage, um, and you know, uh, then also the the percentage in terms of whether you're going to go for paying LMI or can go a guarantor loan. But it's generally not the 25% that a lot of people think it is. Yeah. So um, you mentioned an important point there. You you really need to be familiar with whether there are any first homeowners grants available in your state or territory any government schemes of the day because these are you know this is a podcast we're recording today but these are movable feasts right things change over time so i guess that's a good really important starting point um even before you think about how much deposit you need you know what do you qualify for in terms of government schemes um and i think then you can start to think about okay we you've got some kind of a target in mind of how much you might need to save if it's 10% plus the stamp duty um you've got a a kind of a, an approximate budget or purchase price in mind. And then then at least you've got a target. And then you can start to think about the things like the budgeting strategies, how you're going to save the deposit. Can parents contribute anything, maybe via a matching scheme? Some people are lucky and they've got parents with spare cash. Others um, have to graft their way through it themselves like I did. Um, so look, it's different circumstances. Um, in terms of um, budgeting strategies, Chris, mm. is there anything that um, your clients, um, is there anything that springs to mind or is yep. it just a individual circumstances? One of the concepts that people um, often think about, I think Scott Pape talked about this, the different buckets, you know, yeah. you save a third and spend a third and, you know, but, um, you know, you've obviously got to bring that down to your own circumstances, but what should people think about when they're starting to think about budgeting and, and saving that deposit? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, Scott Pape's been super successful, multiple million dollars of books and um, millions of books have been sold. I and dollars just, probably. <laughs> yeah, and I think I'll just throw one final point in there with the government schemes. Pete and I will definitely agree on this, I hope. Um, but, you know, a lot of the government schemes often um, push people to new property. Um, and and so you've got to be careful not to fall for the gravy um, and, you know, take a grant from the government, but then be forced to buy a particular type of property, which is often a new property, which isn't a great investment, which you'll learn um, often um, on this podcast. But, I mean, the bucket strategy that I personally used, I think um, I, I had this uh, mentality that, you know, as you weren't, it's a... Uh, hedonic sort of you know lifestyle as soon as you earn more money you often spend more money you increase living your lifestyle and i think the first thing people need to do is realize that they're not earning as much as they think they're earning mm. and so um you know when the paycheck comes in and let's say it's five thousand dollars for that month you feel really rich when that hits your bank account and you, you spend like you got five thousand dollars but the truth is you haven't you, you're not really you've got a certain amount of costs that are fixed costs that are life costs maybe it's your rent maybe it's your food your transport um you know insurance Etc. And those things are non-negotiable. So your five thousand could very quickly go from five down to two, 
um, because life cost is pretty expensive to live, you know, in Australia. Um, so really, you're only earning two grand a month in this scenario. And if you go and spend $100 on a night out or a dinner or something like that, well, you've just spent 5% of your, your monthly budget. You haven't spent 2%, which, you know, and it's a different mindset. Um, so I would say, firstly, cut your spending down, your income straight away. So if you earn 5000 Send three thousand dollars off to a life account where all your fixed expenses are. Then you've got two thousand dollars left over. Figure out what you you really want to save per month. Let's say it's a thousand. Send that off to a savings account straight away. You know some incomes. There's multiple ways of doing it. Maybe with your pay, you could do it directly, uh, like a direct transfer, or you could even ask work to to send it to three different accounts. That's um sometimes possible. So then you've got a thousand dollars left over each month, and then even depending on how good you are at your spending. Um, you could even distribute that $250 a week, for example, to a life lifestyle account, right? Depending on, and then you go, well, I'm basing my, you know, $100 off $250 this week. Is it really the most efficient way to spend that $250? And I think that's the best way I would say is you, you cut your spending, um, your income down into certain buckets, but you live off what's in your life account, not of what you earn because it's two completely different things. What have you seen, Pete? What have, what have you used yourself? Uh, one of the... Um People I like to follow is a guy in New York uh, called Ramit Sethi. Um, he wrote a book called "I Will Teach You to Be Rich." A bit of a scammy-sounding title, as he likes to say. But um, I think one of the things that he talks about these days is, yes, you can get very meticulous about you know your day-to-day expenses, you know, living on lentils and never spending a, a dollar. But for for most people, I mean, life you know gets in the way. So what what he talks about is identify the big-ticket items. Um, so to use my personal example, I mentioned on a previous podcast, my wife owned her own home. Um, I used the first homeowner's grant to buy my first place. But when we saved together to save for a deposit to buy our first place together, we went through that exercise. Right? What are the big ticket items? Firstly, car in Sydney. We didn't need a car. We're living in Piermont. Uh, so we used, um, we got rid of our vehicle and we... Uh, used the car sharing scheme and look, it wasn't great. I won't name the company, but look, it wasn't brilliant, but it saved us a heck of a lot of money for a car we didn't need. Yeah. So that was one thing. The other thing, anyone who remembers me when I was younger was just going out, boozing, essentially living in central Sydney. You could go out seven nights a week if if you were that way inclined. So we made a decision that we were just going to stop all of that. Um, we trained to do the Sydney Marathon, which, you know, like it's a different journey for everybody, but we had to find some way of breaking the breaking the trend in spending. So that was the way we did it. And very hard. I used to find Friday nights absolutely impossible. Everyone else is going to the opera bar. I used to have to go to the gym just to shut it all out. Look, it, it it's a different journey for every single person. But the point is, you're going to have to make a sacrifice somewhere. Mm. So you've got to look for those big ticket items. If you're lucky and you've got a parent who can help out, fantastic. But if not, you're going to have to make some big sacrifices potentially. Yeah, I think the Australian Finance Podcast, obviously, uh, Owen and the team, um, you know, have got lots and lots of tips there around sort of what you can do around sort of cutting spending and saving money and budgeting, et cetera. I think what I like to think about is goal gradient theory is that, I love this. you know, that when people have got closer to their goal, they get more motivated. Similar when you were doing the marathon, the first gym sessions are the hardest Horrendous. ones. They're <laughs> the first week, impossible. How do people go to the gym instead of going to the pub? It's, it seemed like an impossibility. But as you exactly point out, with goal gradient theory, as you're getting sort of 60, 70, 80% towards your goal, the motivation, because you can sense, you know, we wanted to save a deposit to buy at Darling Harbour, right? So we were lucky higher income earners, but the closer you get to the goal, 
the more motivated you get. Like, and it, it becomes a new routine, and you enjoy ticking off the, um, you know, ticking off the the goal as you go. Essentially, yeah. So, like, it, it's making a start is the hardest thing, I think. Yeah, exactly. And I think once you start getting further down the journey, you start getting a bit more creative. And I think this is like things you were saying there about selling the car. Absolutely, mm. we sell some assets. Um, yeah. We we see whether you call them assets or liabilities is probably <laughs> a different thing. But um, yeah, we often say, why would you own a car when you could potentially own a property? You know one thing goes up one thing goes down um so you know making changes like that um we often find that you know like you say around family it is a bit of a hit and miss some people have got the benefit of um that luxury i guess a family can help out and my from my experience a lot of family will help out if they've seen you build the right behaviors and you've got a strategy and you're clear and they can see that you're really working towards it and they can just be that missing ingredient because a lot of parents do want to help their kids. I think that's a, a really good time to go then right in the start of the journey when you've got no savings. Mum and dad, can you help me? Yeah. Um, I think that's it. Um, even selling other items, um, you know, investing your money, that's obviously something a bit a little fraught for danger and we'll talk about that in other episodes. But, you know, we've seen that obviously work. Che- constantly checking your deposit. Like I think a lot of people um, don't know things are changing. You know, New South Wales is a big change with stamp duty, which reduced the amount of deposit. There was access to super that, that existed, you know, and things like that are changing, um, government schemes, et cetera. So I think you, you get creative when you've got your eye on the ball and you're getting closer to your goal. You really start, um, yeah, getting closer and closer. Yeah, so there's really two sides to the equation. I guess you can reduce your expenditure where yeah. possible, and you can increase the income if you can negotiate a raise or a bonus. Maybe take a new role. Uh, I've seen younger people working two jobs, you yeah. know, working in a bar on the weekend. You know, it all works. Um, so essentially, you know, whatever needs to be done. What about when you're saving for the deposit, Chris? Um, I guess this is. Um, you know, just a general point rather than specific advice. But what what do people do with the money? Do they just sock it into a savings account? I mean, some people might look at trying to grow the deposit uh, through stock market or other investments. Is there a one size fits all here or does it just come down to the individual? Look, I think it depends on how close you are to the goal, right? So if you're looking to buy in the next six or 12 months mm. um, and you're trying to, and you're almost there, you're 80, 90% of the way there, do you really want to risk it into the, the markets, right? Mm. Um, and if the markets do have a bit of a, a tougher time, with there's always volatility in every market, um, and you see a 20 or 30% down, then you've just moved further away from your goal. And that could be the best time to be buying as well. Mm. So you just got to be careful how close you are. Look, if you're trying to save your first 10,000 um, and you, you want to start, you know, investing into a shares and you're looking five, 10 years down the line, absolutely. Don't just leave it in the bank. You know, inflation and, and tax are going to eat a lot of that away. So, um, yeah, I guess it depends on your time. Well, I suppose, I, uh, you know, um, for, for years we've had zero interest rates or very close to it, but actually now um, interest rates have gone back up. You know, you can actually get fixed interest accounts that pay a decent amount at least. First time we've been able to say that in a long time, uh, fixed interest returns on your money so you don't just have to leave it in a zero percent savings account now yeah and i think that was in the last few years when we had interest rates at you know zero or you know one or two percent in the bank um that encourages people to speculate and speculating investing is completely different things you saw the crypto craze um you know the sort of tech investing um stage you know what's happened to the nasdaq in the last couple of years so what you do with the deposit that's a whole other conversation but um, I think ultimately, I think even increasing your income, we see that moving back in home um, with family. That's a definitely, a, I think a lot of first home buyers, if they've got that luxury and they can still work where they are, um, cutting their rent out for six months is a good plan as well. Um, and to just to get you close to your goal and a lot of parents will support you with that. So above and beyond 
um, saving the deposit, making that first purchase, which is something we'll talk about in other episodes, um, post-purchase. So I guess you've got two different things here. You've got the, the home buyer who owns their home and they might have some maintenance and repairs and so on. But then you've got the investor purchaser, which is a slightly different kettle of fish because you've got rent coming in and tenant repairs and vacancies to think about. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a bit about cash flow management post-purchase, Chris. So let's start with the home buyer. So yeah. I guess the first thing is to understand really what are your costs. The main one is going to obviously be the mortgage repayment, but yeah. you'll have some other costs as well like rates, home insurance, and potentially some repairs as well. Yeah, I think it's a really danger zone and it's quite stressful. It forces a lot of people not to buy property is that they're just not – there's an element of safety when you've got $100,000 in the bank account, you know, and freedom to be honest. You you can go – if your friend says you want to go on holidays, you can just go on holidays. The money's there. If, uh, you know, you want to uh, spend some money. But once you purchase, usually you lose a lot of your savings. Um and so you go from a you know big deposit and big buffer to no buffer. And as brokers, we're always trying to maximize the buffer. We're not trying to, you know, when you settle, you've got no money in the bank account. I think that's a key thing to be aiming for is to have some type of buffer. Um, but I think the, the first thing is obviously you save from rent, but then, you know, it really depends on the interest rate and your mortgage. And, you know, especially in the last few years, we've also been stress testing clients. So, you know, yes, your rate's 5% today, but what happens if rates go to 6.5%? How much would your repayment go up? You need to know that number. It's actually really easy to figure out. But at least that gives you the confidence to go, well, yeah, even if rates did go up, that means, yeah, we'd have to cut our non-negotiables back, you know, our lifestyle costs a little bit, but we would be willing to do that if we've got an asset and to protect ourselves. If, you know, if rates go down, well, that means we can keep on paying above our mortgage and pay it off faster. Um, I think the key thing here with the mortgage and what you should pay, that's two different numbers, you know. A bank might say you need to pay $5,000 a month, but that doesn't mean you should just pay five. If you can afford seven or eight or nine, you know, you can really, once you understand the benefit in doing so and how that snowballs and really gets you on top of your mortgage and builds more buffers. Um, so I think that's the, the first thing. Yeah, obviously there's um, insurance and rates that you're not paying when you're renting. Um, but the other thing is maintenance. And I think this is a, you can get yourself in a bit of a problem here if you haven't budgeted for that. Pete, what's some stories you've sort of seen there and what's the issues? Well, I think the, um, the first thing to say is that whenever you buy a property as a rule of thumb anyway um, unless you're buying somewhere to demolish you probably want to do a building and pest inspection so you really know that the place you're buying is in good condition or if it's not at least you can negotiate on the purchase price um, accordingly so I mean one of the big things that really bring people undone in property issues with a roof can be very expensive live termite activity or structural issues. I mean, those are the sorts of things that are real red flags and a building and pest inspection will pick those up. I think the thing is though with um, real estate, if you're going to own it for a long period of time, potentially, there will be repairs and maintenance. Um, so it would make sense to budget like maybe one to 2% yep. of, the, of the property value. Like it depends, you know, a weatherboard home in Queensland, that there could be some ongoing uh, maintenance in terms of repainting. Uh, but even with a newer property, you know, you do get uh, stuff happens, you know, life gets in the way, as they say. So I think it does that does make sense. Even if you've gone through, you know, the building and pest inspection, it's all clean. You, you should still budget for some ongoing repairs and maintenance because it will happen. 
Yeah, I've definitely seen clients come unstuck here where they haven't done the building and pest um, or they've used the agent's building and pest and that's sometimes not showing all the mistakes or the issues with the property. Um, but yeah, even if you haven't got any you know, short-term costs, things are going to start decaying on the property. Even just painting it you know, can be surprisingly expensive You know, every five years and um, when the roof finally does. Or if you're in an apartment, you can get things called special levies and you've really got to read the strata report and make sure that the building's well-maintained and there's a real plan on what they're going to do through from here. So that would be the, the budget, you know, get get a real understanding of your deposit, get a plan in place, not only before you purchase, but post, you know, protect yourself with a buffer and if interest rates go up. Investments are a little bit different, Pete. How, how do we, should we attack investments versus homes? I think um, an investment property, well, it's a very different from a cash flow standpoint because you've got rent coming in, which is hopefully going to pay the mortgage, but you're going to have tenants in place. Now, you should probably uh, budget for potentially a couple of weeks a year to have no tenant. And sometimes you can have um, post-purchase, you might have a few days with vacancy, but it could take a month or two to actually get the place up and running and tenanted. So vacancies is one thing to budget for, but you generally find that with tenants, there'll be a bit more wear and tear. Sometimes tenants will request maintenance items to be done, sometimes a lot. Um, so the cash flow management for an investment property is slightly different. You should really map this out on a spreadsheet. It doesn't need to be overly complicated. Um, but you've got, essentially got your rent coming in. You've got your mortgage repayments. Um, the interest is generally tax deductible uh, for a rental property, which is a good thing. Uh, but then you've still got your your other costs, so you know potentially um, strata fees or body corporate for a, a strata title property. Um, you've got um, home insurance um, and the other costs that we mentioned, sort of the rates and um, repairs and so on. So what you really want to do, you'll never get it exactly right, but it's just map it out. You know, how should this look over a year? You know, if we're getting 20000 of rental income and the mortgage payments are 15000 and we've got the other costs, you know, you won't get it exactly right to the dollar because there's always going to be bits and pieces of maintenance and so on, but you should have a fairly good idea of how that cash flow is going to look over the course of a year. Yeah, I think you've got to be a bit um, careful here when you buy an investment property. It's just to assume that the current rent will continue. Um, it could be a bit low, the current rent, but you know what that lease uh, may finish when you settle. Um, you might actually have someone who owns the, living in the property when you buy it, and so you have to put it out to the market. So you want to have that market knowledge. Is this um, rent realistic? And in its current state, is there anything you need to spend on the property to get it rented out again? It can catch you out. So I think that's a real thing to plan for is just to go, well, yeah, it's actually totally fine now to rent out. Maybe I need to do a repaint or take out that carpet or, you know, tidy up the garden a little bit, but nothing major. You know, getting access to the property for, you know, renting it out while you, before you settle, sometimes it's a good thing because then potentially a tenant could move in very quickly after settlement. Um, but one of the big things with cash flow for investment properties, whether you go interest only or principal and interest on your, your mortgage. Um, now with investment properties, it's often best to go interest only because you maximize your tax deduction and then you can keep building your buffer and then the additional interest cost is tax deductible. So, but, you know, depending on what LVR and, you know, what, um, you know, type of property, et cetera, you're buying, maybe that's not even possible. So understanding the, the debt side to it is, is really important. Um, but also, the, the, you know, minimizing that vacancy, really, that's the issue when you, you know, your properties, maybe there's lots of properties like that, that you're trying to buy as an investment property on the market to rent. Well, that's a big red flag on why you shouldn't be buying it in the first place, right? So, um, but yeah, once you do that, I mean, you 
even if it's a positively geared, you know, that means that the income's covering all the expenses, which is always really difficult, um, or whether it's negatively geared uh, and you get tax back at the end of the year, um, understanding your cash flow is really important because it just gives you that peace of mind. Yeah, I bought that investment property, but I'm going to easily be able to afford this for the next five years. Even if interest rates go up and even if my rent doesn't go up, I'm totally okay with that cash flow. Um, and I know that there's a benefit in doing so in terms of the capital growth. Yeah, I think there's there's basically two really big subjects, um, I think, to wrap up here, Chris, and th- to some degree, they're the subject of another podcast, but one is the tax implication. So a an investment property, depending on where you buy, depending on the land value, may be subject to land tax. Um, so that's one thing that you need to understand. Generally, cheaper properties, not so much, but yeah. it, it does depend on the state uh, or territory. Uh, and the, the, obviously the negative gearing implication. Uh, so in Australia, if you make a, a loss, a, a net rental loss on a rental property, uh, that can actually reduce the tax that you pay um, as an income earner, as an employee, for example. So um, that's another, it's a big subject and maybe something we'll go into more detail on another time. And it's worth uh, noting actually that if you do have a tax refund due, people don't necessarily have to wait to the end of the tax year to get that benefit. They can do uh, what's called a PAYG variation. I think the other really big subject, Chris, which we might just wrap up on, is if you've got, uh, you, you mentioned building a buffer. Now, one of the things that's almost uniquely Australian is the use of um, offset accounts. Yeah. So um, if you've got, um, you've made a purchase, uh, you're saving maybe a thousand or two thousand dollars a month. Um, now, you can keep that money just in your uh, savings account, but in Australia, people like to use um, uh, to build up buffers in an offset facility. So this is a big subject in its own right, but I just wanted to explain what an offset account is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we'll talk a lot about offset accounts in mortgage strategy, et cetera, but they're absolutely uh, an amazing tool for home buyers or investors um, because what they allow you to do is to offset your mortgage interest by leaving money in a savings account so you can get fully access to it at any point in time. But it means instead of getting, you know, saving rental, you know, saving interest, you basically save interest on your mortgage. And so it's just a savings account attached to your mortgage. So if you're, for example, bought a house, you know, what we try to do is keep as much money as we could left over. Um, you know, and there might be an opportunity cost of maybe you pay a little bit more lender's mortgage insurance, but that still keeps you an extra 25 grand as a buffer. And sometimes that cost is worth it. Um, but whatever that money is left over after you purchase, instead of that pack, leaving that in a savings account, you put that into your mortgage offset account. Um, and that's like exactly the same because interest is calculated daily as whether you had a smaller loan. So if you had a million dollar loan with $100,000 in the offset account, you'd pay interest on 900000 versus exactly the same situation as if you just had a loan of 900000 But the million dollar option with 100000 in the offset is much better because if something goes wrong, if you know work, health, the property, you've got 100000 they're available, ready to go liquid. The same thing with an investment property. We always love to, you know, understand what the negative cash flow is for that twelve months. You know, it may or may not be with the um, depreciation benefits that you could get, or with um, tax benefits. And ideally, try to get that at least in a buffer. So if the the negative cost over a year is ten grand, well, I've got ten or twenty thousand dollars in an offset account against that property. You know, knowing that you know if something happens, that property is covered for a year or two. Um, and really negotiating your interest only is really important with investment properties, which uh, yeah, which we will cover in another episode. So I think, um, yeah, some covered some big subjects there, Chris, but I think that's about it for today's 
episode. Um, so if you've got any questions, as always, um, you can find a way to contact us in the show notes. Um, and uh, if you're saving for that first deposit, I know it's a it's a tough journey to go through. Um, I remember it well going through it myself, but the, the benefits are generally well worth it in the long run. So good luck on the journey. Absolutely. Send us questions. We love it. And we're doing our fortnightly Q&A. So look forward to hearing from you soon. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.